Mad About Miniatures. I'm thrilled to be talking to Wendy Littlepage, Director of the Denver Museum of Miniatures, Dolls, and Toys. Wendy is going to share some great behind-the-scenes stories about their fabulous miniature collection. Let's go talk to Wendy. Hi, Wendy. So glad to have you with us today. Great to be here, Becky. I'm excited. Yes. Well, Wendy, you are the director of the Denver Museum of Miniature and Toys. Am I right? Yep, I am. Miniatures, dolls, and toys. We got it all. Well, that's great. And I've actually been there. Thank you. And I actually was there many, many years ago. I was trying to think when. We lived in Denver for a long time, and when the boys were little, I would bring them. And it was in this big old house, and they would Mm -hmm. go in, and you had this great scavenger hunt they loved. And they would run around, and they could stand on little stools to look at the dollhouses. And they were boys, but they loved it. So we used to do that. And then COVID, that's when I got into dollhouses. And our trip was to Colorado. And I thought, I wonder if the museum is still open. And I looked, and you were opening in a new location. Yeah. And I believe I got a ticket for the first day. That's when we just happened to be coming. It was so exciting for me. That is exciting. I was so tired. I don't remember that whole week. We moved during the pandemic and we remodeled and we opened. And I think I worked something like 60 days straight almost. Apparently, I'm very nice while brain dead. So yes, we met you. You were very nice. It was quite a feat. We had a much smaller crew than we anticipated, but it was a lot of fun to really move into a location. Our old house was so charming. It was. It wasn't ADA accessible anywhere. I mean, there's nothing like telling a really nice person who can't walk upstairs that all the cool stuff is upstairs. Oh. So you did actually open, let's see, when was it? August 2020 in our new location. So you must have had a lot of big plans for publicity and groups that just didn't happen. That must have been really hard. We did. We had a gala or sort of like high-end event with big money tickets, which fundraising is so key. And then we had like a community day. There's a local bluegrass band called the Dollhouse Thieves, and they're real family-friendly, and I was like... I'm going to get the dollhouse thieves to play and we'll have ice cream and just like old school games like hopscotch and outside games and have people come through. And so we couldn't do any of that. That's so hard. But I will say, and you've already mentioned it, that I think the pandemic has been weirdly good for dollhouses as a hobby, as a craft, as an art. We, I've had so many people who started dollhouses during the pandemic or dug dollhouses out. We met a nurse who's creating medical scenes in miniature. She showed me pictures, but they're all like mid-century, a little dark. She'd done a morgue at a dentist situation. Well, that's great because I was going to ask if you were seeing more people in the museum or younger people. When I started, I just kind of wanted to do it myself. And I guess I didn't even realize if I was influenced by Instagram or other people doing it, I didn't know it. And then after I was doing it, my son's like, you need an Instagram page. I put it up there. And I think the first day, you know, I got all these likes. 
Then I started looking. I was like, oh my gosh, there's all these great, amazing, talented people out there. And now I've become so involved in the community. And it really was so nice during COVID. You know, I felt like I found people to talk to, things to get up and look at. It was wonderful. And there was a lot of new interest in it. I think Instagram and TikTok have been really great for minis. There's a mini community on Facebook, but I think that sort of infiltrating people's feeds, TikTok has a notorious algorithm that no one can figure out, but infiltrating those feeds so people know, are you like, oh yeah, like I I do like that. Or people will just, it'll just show up and then it brings it to them. You know, it's like getting served with an idea. And whether it's just as a supporter or a trier. Yeah. I think it's being shown in a fresher way. You know, people are doing some funny videos, some different things. There's some more modern stuff. It's kind of dusting it off. And I think, you know, we've seen growing younger audiences over the last decade. And it was one of the real heartbreaks of having to close and move is we'd really, our largest growing audience had been that millennial demographic over the last decade, and especially the last five years. And we'd also really been showing improvement in the number of men visiting. And so both of those things were so encouraging. And then we had to close and move. But I think people are bringing a new perspective. I think also, it's been more trendy in Japan for a long time, and other parts of Asia. So I think that sort of boost of K-pop and all of that sort of love and excitement about pop culture from that part of the world has been really great for the hobby in general. And you do a lot of really cool things at the museum. I mean, we'll talk about the museum itself and all the miniatures, but you also had a miniature show in the fall, is it? We have a big show at a hotel in the fall and a small one at a local church in February. There you go. I know you have classes that go with that. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about all that. So probably our biggest block of miniature classes is at our fall show, which is the weekend after Labor Day every year. And we have everything from all day workshops, so like six hours to like 10 minute little crafts, sit down, make a little scene or learn how to paint a cactus or something like that, as well as kids programming at that fall show. We have artists come in and we pull from our really great local group of artists to teach workshops at the fall show. We've started a mini meetup group because we had so many miniaturists who were like, oh, I love this. I might love this more with friends. Right. I encourage anyone, wherever you are, to see if there's a miniature group because some of these people that volunteer with me or help us out for things, they've forgotten more than like I'll ever know about miniatures. And I'll be like, hey, team, what glue should I use on this and they're like, oh, I don't know. And then I leave the room and I come back and they're like, well, we have thoughts. And they'll give me like the breakdown. That's great. And how many people do usually come to the fall show? How big a show is it? I want to say like 500 will come. And how many vendors is that? Yeah, I want to say it's like 60 to 80. Oh, nice. And it depends. You know, sometimes people will show up and they're like, I need eight tables. And you're like, oh, Okay. Love to hear it. It is our biggest fundraiser. Yes, I want to come next fall. I really do. I think it would be really fun. 
And I will give you a little plug. I think of all the miniature museums I've been to, you have the best gift shop. And it's run by a volunteer. She's she's a dynamo. It's amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful stuff, great prices, such a great selection. So we don't promise we have everything, but we might have something you never thought you needed. <laughs> no, you have a lot. You have a really yeah. good gift shop. I've been to like six miniature museums, so I know. I know. Every so often we get the, this museum doesn't even have miniatures in their gift shop that are grown-up miniatures. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm sure they're doing their best. It's fun. And, you know, we also do, we have a yard sale every June, which is like a little bit of chaos, but a great place for miniaturists to find some deals or take a chance. Oh, yeah, that's always fun. So tell us a little bit about some of the houses that are the cornerstone of your collection. Cornerstone of our collection. So we are lucky because we get an embarrassment of riches. One of our most famous pieces is the Someday House, and it's a lot of fun. It's based on a real house in Denver's Country Club neighborhood. So it was built in the 30s. And the dollhouse belonged to a woman named Betty or Betts O'Mara. She is a real Colorado girl. Her family kind of made their fortune processing beans in the southeast of Colorado and then came up here and her dad owned a horse ranch. So there's sort of Southwest art, which was a real passion of hers. And you'll see horse things. And they also went, she traveled all over. So you really... All of her travels and things are just reflected in her dollhouse. And it's called the Someday House because she said, someday I'm going to have a dollhouse of the house I grew up in. Oh, that's so nice. And it gets cuter, though. Wait. And in 1976, her husband said that someday is now and (gasps) had commissioned it for her. So cute. So cute. And it was a real family project. You'll find kids and grandkids and all sorts of art in there along with some real high-end names. It's a Tudor house, and it has a great patio. Her husband's family brought Ford cars to the region, so there's a Ford Mustang out front. So what are some special pieces that are in the house? Let's see. There's a Colorado artist named George Becker, and he was working a lot in the 90s, and she had custom pieces done by him. So there's a bunch of bedroom sets and things. There's rugs that she did, uh, Patty Point, Her one son did silver, but there's a lot of Akisto silver. One of the things that is difficult is she didn't always label everything. She went to shows. She was a dealer. So there's probably listeners who knew her. She and her daughter ran a business called Maisons de Maisons up through, I think, the mid-2000s. And she was good at finding young talent, you know, support them in early career and Anyone who's been an artist knows how important that is. Oh, yes. It's an amazing house. That house and then the house, I forgot the name of it, that has just all this beautiful farmland. Yeah. With the crops are, I think, my two favorites. The farmhouse is great. That's one of our newer pieces. It's one of two pieces by a Colorado artist, Mariana Cameron. That's her family farm. And so... She's done really nice things where she's, she did photographs of the family and the, instead of dolls in the house. And there's like 18 cats hidden and people will spend like 45 minutes, not just children. And there's one that's very hard to find if you're kind of over four feet tall. So it's a real, it's a real equalizer, that cat. What I love about the farmhouse is I've never seen a more extensive landscape. 
No, it's so involved. Porn and there's, you know, dog peeing and there's a rooster fight with the goats. There's all these little stories and vignettes. Yeah, and there's even she had historic farm equipment created, which I love. If you know farms, then you're like, yeah, yeah, we have one of those. It's like been in the barn and no one wants to get it down. But, you know, it's like there is lost knowledge with fewer people farming. And I love that she wanted to really represent technology and farming. Yes, I think that was the house when the first time we came, there was some little thing in the kitchen and we couldn't figure out what it was. Water heater. I mean, there was all this stuff you were like, what is that? You know, very, very true to the farmhouses I remember going to. Yeah, I think that there's, you know, and kids, why is there an outhouse and a bathroom? But the bathroom is on the second floor. And I was like, your mom let you walk through the house with muddy boots? She's going to have you go outside. And the kids are like, outside. (laughs) Things they've just never thought of. Right, but it's an adorable outhouse. You know, it has little vines, a little moon in it. It's the cutest outhouse. It's classic. It's very clean. Yeah, like I grew up in an area that still had outhouses, so. So you know. I know. I do think the dollhouse as a storytelling mechanism, and I think that's also the two by Mariana Cameron, the farm, and then the there's a big Victorian-ish era house, Gilded Age-esque, and they've got this, the first horseless carriage, I and mean, everyone's come to see it. I think it's a really great sort of escape. When we opened in August 2020, and those were the first time those were on display, people really were like, so if you've been living in a city, there was a lot of sort of almost claustrophobia. Colorado's pretty lucky. We have lots of outdoor space, but that's sort of like, I can't go anywhere. I can't go anywhere and I can't see anyone. And I think people are just like, I'm moving to that farm and I'm sitting on that porch for the rest of the year. But as soon as sort of the holidays hit, that party house, everyone was like, oh my gosh, the party and the table all set, like glassware and gold forks and knives and roasted meats was really, really engaging and little time capsule. It was. It was really neat. And like I said, the farm, you know, I was sort of explaining to my kids, like some of the things my mom had told me about growing up in a farm, could really use the house to sort of explain that in a way that I don't think they could visualize otherwise. I think that, you know, we talk about that in interior design too. Like if you do a period house and all of a sudden, well, what's a dry sink and what's you know, what are all the things you need if you were processing wool or like all these little things that make an older house work? We have a antique grocery store. It's from the mid 1800s and kids are like, well, but where are their bags? Like, Oh, they would bring a basket. And then kids are like, that's smart. Instead of having a grocery basket at the grocery store, you would bring your own and then you don't have to unpack it. So it was this what's old is new again moments where we really kind of reconnect to, oh, right, that would be great. I mean, even the idea of a dry sink or we have that Southwest Santa Fe house and there's a chapel in one of the bedrooms. And you like, I'm like, well, yeah, if you were really religious, you know, hop out of bed, go on over, get yourself centered for the day and gone out. So some interesting practical things. And you do have some beautiful Southwestern pieces that I just don't see anywhere else. Yeah, I think the Southwest stuff was really popular in the 90s, 80s and 90s. It's maintained some of its popularity. I think a lot of those houses have a little less Victorian clutter. 
they do. In in some ways, they almost look more modern. And I'll be right. posting some pictures of yeah. some of the ones we're talking about. And then there's one that's very vertical. Is it in a gun case? Oh, yeah. There's that proud tradition of turning furniture into dollhouses. And I mean, I can't recommend it enough because furniture is built to fit in your house. Right. <laughs> so a lot of those floor plans... They're easier to move. And I've moved every house in our collection, so I feel confident in saying that. It's it's in an old gun case. They turned it into, it almost looks like a loft property. It does. And it was done, I like, before lofts really took off. I want to say it was done in, like, the late 70s. I would still live there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it looks like a high-end Denver loft of a Southwestern Native American art collector. It's got a, a bunch of miniature guns in it. And it's actually aged really well because it doesn't have a TV. And now where you have so many more people, like the TV isn't the center of the living room. Right. We're definitely seeing a trend where people are like, I just watch movies on my laptop. Or even just like the how much more compact flat screens are compared mm-hmm. to the big old giant TVs of even the 90s. Comparatively, it's, it all of a sudden looks much more modern to be able to hide all your tech. That's funny. So do you have some favorite pieces? Oh, it depends on the day. We have a Marie Beale house I like. I grew up in New England and it's very like New England. It's got a skating rink. It's clabberts and like turkey dinner on the table. And really, it's a half scale house. I really love the Santa Fe house. If I was going to move into one of our doll houses, it would be the Santa Fe house. Me too. I mean, there's already chips and salsa on the table. And then we have a Noel and Pat Thomas house that's not on display. And the work in there is so fine. Just everything is custom and miniature stained glass. And it came unfurnished. And we were always talking about furnishing it. But after moving it, we're going to leave it unfurnished because it's, you know, parquet floors that are all hand done. And, you know, sometimes it can just be hard to see details there's something else really impressive in the room. So when we are moving and trying to get the conversation going, we had put it out and we did little moving boxes and then we did like a pizza and we had a little six pack of cores, Colorado. (laughs) So it looked, you know, kind of like first night in the new home. Oh, that's clever. We bought this crazy Victorian and all we have is these boxes and a sleeping bag kind of vibes. Like me in my first house. Yes, it gives that story that a lot of people can relate to. That's like, well, we have a mattress and one pot. And so will you put it back on display? Because it's such an amazing piece. Yeah, we will. It needs a little bit of conservation. We got three large houses that came in during our move. And one of them was a piece by longtime member Judy Ursary. And she passed away unexpectedly so it was a real sort of emotionally important for our group to get it out because she'd just been such a champion and it's a great piece it's my favorite kind of dollhouse which is the no compromises dollhouse we're like I don't care if people think there's too much pink or too much floral or I shouldn't have 30 cats like I mean, hers only has one, two cats, but all of those things, like this is my dollhouse. I don't have to talk to a spouse about it. I don't have to plan for practicality. And this is what I want. So that one's really fun to talk to people about. And it's very like glittery and glitzy and floral. And so it really connects to that audience. 
That's a great house. And, you know, it goes with my own personal motto. I usually sign off the podcast by saying, you know, and remember, it's your dollhouse. There are no rules in the dollhouse except the ones you create for yourself. And it sounds like she really internalized that. Yeah, it's fun. And it's fun to sort of remember her as like this person that had like exact taste. And I mean, her real house was gorgeous. But that sort of like, oh, what do you have to do if you don't have to ask a spouse about having a floral print couch? You put it in. <laughs> like, I don't care if you don't like it. Although one of my favorite miniaturists, Marion Littlejohn, she was local paper flower and tatter miniature maker and she told me that her husband was colorblind and her favorite color was pink so she painted the whole house pink different shades of pink and told him it was cream because he didn't know i love that (laughs) (laughs) so one of the things you also have some toys and Mm -hmm. dolls out and i actually remember one of the things that caught my husband's eye was you have an early chemistry set Mm -hmm. and we were looking at the rather dangerous ingredients in there You literally could do quite a bit of damage with that set. Oh, for sure. If there's an apocalypse, I'm grabbing that chemistry set and the book. Because it does have, it's like soap, how to make your own soap, which is a tricky process. But there is, there's straight up like chlorine gas. But we do see that. Like we have a toy soldier set that came with detailed schematics and drawing, hand-drawn Battle of the Bulge and how to build a landmine. I think if we saw that in a kid's toy nowadays, we'd be very concerned and there would be counselors. But if you're talking early 20th century and you're talking World War One, and then you're talking going into World War Two, and just how unsettled the things were... Well, they had different standards for appropriate for children. I mean, there was mercury in this chemistry set. Those were made by the Gilbert Toy Company, also famed for erector sets. And this is great because this is the same thing we're worrying about now with our children. He was very worried that American education wasn't teaching kids to be problem solvers and like free thinkers. Oh, So he created educational toys, you know, erector sets, chemistry sets. I think at one point there was like some sort of atomic energy set. There's glass blowing sets. I mean, OSHA really put a a lid on these very dangerous chemistry sets. But that idea of the value of hands-on learning, I think there is merit to it. There is, but you could really, a free thinker could really blow up a city block with that. Yeah. We had a chemistry professor go through it and check that we didn't have any unstable chemicals. I'm glad to hear that. So we got a kick out of that. We also got a kick out of some of the games you had. There was one um, which we can only guess came from maybe the 80s uh, called Finance, which we can't imagine any of our children (laughs) wanting to play. And another called Oil King, Own All the Oil Fields. Yeah, very late 20th century vibes on that sort of big finance, oil games. There's We have a game called That's Truckin' from the late 70s about being a trucker. And it sort of teaches you how to do mileage and logistics. So it's a very useful game. It doesn't sound fun, but it does sound educational. (laughs) I mean, the graphics are good. And as you know, that can really pull a a game out of the weeds. But there's a bunch of finance and stock games. If you think about the 80s. I figured they had to be from the 80s. We were just cracking up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some very like aggressive yuppie vibes in there. Um, Make more money, make more money. 
you think it's kind of dark and then you go back another generation. It's just like war games. And there's, we have a game that's like how to invade Africa. And you're like, this seems bad, but we still see war games, Stratego and chess and all these strategy games. It does sort of show you a side to the social culture of, of that era. Yeah. There's an era where you start to get much more children focused games Candyland was for kids recovering from polio and you know then we have like Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys games and Strawberry Shortcake and Muppets. There's a big board game boom. Let's all work together and Saturday evening playing board games and having meatloaf. And I think well you do see finance games because you see a lot of toys reflecting important things to know. So Monopoly managing money, managing property, even shoots and ladders, just like accepting consequences, trivial pursuit. We've been playing a game called Pandemic. Oh, yeah. It's a cooperative game. And it was created before the pandemic. It's like a decade old. Yeah. But it was the first cooperative game I've ever played where everyone works together to win. Yeah. You know, at first when they said it was a cooperative game, I'm like, what? (laughs) You know, part of me was like, that's not how games are supposed to be. It's supposed to be winner to loser. But it's one of my favorite games. And it really does actually teach important cooperation skills. Yeah. Which are vital to today's society in the workplace and getting along with people. And it made me think, why aren't there more cooperative games? Yeah, I, I think they're out there. I know. I mean, Monopoly was originally a game to teach the value of socialism, but you know, (laughs) they don't all get to print. I'm a youngest child in my family. So any game where you can get all your siblings to gang up on someone else is a cooperative game. Oh, (laughs) that's a different way of looking at it. That's true. I think that we're seeing more cooperative games. I think, you know, it's a shift culturally. People are like, oh, right. Most industries aren't siloed anymore. The ideals of American exceptionalism get really put into board games and we're independent and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But then people are like, oh, wait a minute, but we could all do this together. And so I think you see sort of shifts in that conversation. Yeah, it's interesting. So one of the things, of course, you walk into the museum and these these giant bears. The giant bears are our handmade mohair bears from the UK. Wow. Largest one is 6'2", and they're all fully jointed. They do have voice boxes. There's like a papa bear, mama bear, and then like a kid, and then a, a smaller sort of regular large teddy bear size. We got the papa bear, and then mama came a little later. Junior flew over first class. Wow. I know. They're jointed at the hips and shoulders, and so if you don't get them perfectly centered, they'll fall. They're not going to crush you, but like, it's a surprise. They sort of growl, but it almost more sounds like a cow moo. Like, you know, those little like tilt boxes that you can get that sort of sound like animal noises. So it's just like, uh. But if you didn't know it was going to growl, that would be scary, right? Right. I had read that the growlers were disabled. So plus side, I was warned. But yeah, there's definitely some silliness every time they get moved of just sort of getting them all right and then sort of waiting. It's like, is it going to fall? <laughs> Best maybe just leave them be for the most part. Yeah. 
So there must be a lot of cleaning. Are, are there certain things that take up the most amount of time? The polishing the silver is no joke. We have a crew of saintly volunteers that there was five of them. They were already their own little pod and they polished silver for a week before we reopened. What? Yeah. Trays, silverware, sculptures, dishes. Wow. Silver bells, candelabras. It took five people a week? Yeah. Do they dip it in the solution? Most of it was polished with a polishing cloth. Those chemicals are pretty harsh. I wondered, because it has to be a relatively thin coating. Some of them are solid silver, but we do, I mean, we also do, my favorite way whenever I have the artists and miniatures out is I put a white sheet on the floor. So when you drop anything, you can see it, like cannot recommend enough. Because even best intentions, and then someone sneezes, and there goes a feather fan. You told me that when we first met. And now there are times I just moved a new hobby table into my room. And I did put down kind of a half of white sheet because we have very thick carpet. And Mm -hmm. sometimes those little champagne glasses, you have to go digging for them. Right. I didn't even think about like carpet pile, but that's... That's really true. We have the carpet that we don't want it to show dirt because it's public space. Yeah, so there's no pile on it. This site is much less dusty than our old site. The historic house was very, very dusty. So I've been working through deep cleanings of the houses that we have. We spent a week cleaning the Someday house last January. The Kingscote Mansion got cleaned like as we are setting it up. Just having actual light, good lighting, you can see it. And I had I had a new volunteer, and she moved something. And I was I was like, if you move something, you're gonna be able to see it's dusty, and then you have to do the whole room. And she was like, ha ha. I'm like, move something, and then she was like, and I was like, right, here's the cloth. <laughs> um, and you know, we have little fur dusters we use, and we have a teeny tiny vacuum. Is it a special vacuum? Yeah, so it's low power, so you're not sucking up everything. And it's got like a little canister, so you can really sift through it just in case. And you're not doing a whole bag. That's smart, because I'm always so paranoid about vacuuming. And, you know, I told you I have this really thick carpet. And so yeah. I have thought there was nothing on the carpet. And then, you know, I run my hands click, through click, and, click. I, <laughs> and I really have felt, you know, yeah. things way down there. So I have to get down there and do a lot of exploration before I can vacuum. Yeah. And some of our older pieces, we've had to like get off a lot of blue tack or like double stick tape that people thought was a good idea. Right. But things do stay cleaner here, which has been nice. So how did you get into to being the director of the museum? I am a museum nerd. I think material culture and tangible things are a great way to talk to people about history. Do you want to talk about 80s finance or do you want to talk about a board game? Probably a board game. You know, I mean, I think it's a great window into material culture. So just objects, whether it's toys or miniatures, it's a great way to invite people into the conversation But my first job was I worked at Plymouth Plantation Living History Museum in Massachusetts. And I worked in the Native American department from like 93, 94 until 97. So that was my first job, like a high schooler teaching Native American history in the 90s. 
I was like aggressively Gen X about it. Um, (laughs) What do you mean you don't know? Pocahontas isn't like, that's not the real story. And then I worked in archives at my college and I did internships at the Science Museum in Denver and a zoo out in Seattle. So, Wow. So do you do miniatures yourself? I don't. I mean, I hear a lot. And so now I have the problem is my taste. It's definitely bigger than my wallet. And I get to, you know, play around with really great stuff every day. I think it'd be hard to want to make stuff too if I was there all the time. Because when you first started making things, then you come to this and you're like, oh. I do things on YouTube. I am also not like a gifted artist in the way where like my heart would want me to be in a miniature artisan way. And I do a lot of our children's programming. And if there's a kit, I can sometimes do pretty well. The artisan level is not going to be me ever. So you can find videos of me doing my best on the museum's YouTube page. I do a really good pom-pom hat at some point in all of those. And sometimes you'll see me have success on those videos because I don't do multiple takes. I just do them. And I'm like, I did it. It's amazing. (laughs) Well, I think that gives you a little bit of realism. I think it's great for people to know that there's a starting point. And then when they're better than me, I think they'll, it'll be great. I'm, I'm building future artisans. <laughs> there you go. I'm good at arranging the dollhouses so they look realistic, but you can see a lot of things. A lot of our volunteers will have a hard time. They'll have a piece they love. And if they're cleaning a house, they'll just like put it in the center of the room. You can't put an armoire just like in the middle of a room. (laughs) Like I know it's beautiful, but. But that's what I love about miniatures. There's room for historians, collectors, people good at display like yourself. Not everyone has to be able to craft it. No, I think that that is really well said. There's so many different ways to be a miniaturist. You can just buy stuff and display it and you're a miniaturist. And there's nothing wrong with that. And all the people out there making things love you. Right. No, it's the difference between like an interior decorator coming into a room and like they move like two pieces of furniture and you're like, what? How did you know? They're like, I went to school for it. Like, I know. I know. That's really cool. So one of the things I thought was really interesting when I came for Christmas, well, it was around Thanksgiving, but you had all these Christmas things up. Were they from museum members? Well, you know, we started as a community museum. There's a bunch of museums that have a sizable fortune behind them. We are not that. One of the plus sides of that is that we don't have one tone or one artist that's most of our collection. We have a lot of voices, which I think is a lot of fun because there's sort of something for everyone. It was a lot of fun because it was really cool to see people from the community that had really worked hard and all these different styles. And I thought it was a really nice touch. I do like it. There's We talk a lot about where we want to take the collection and we, do we want it all to be artisan? What's the value of sort of the craft or the folk art miniature? Because we have one artist, Pat Vick, and she is she, it's just whatever the weirdest container she can find is what she puts her miniatures in. And her stuff is wildly creative. Is that the apple bucket? No, that was actually one of our early fall show all day workshops. But the apple bucket is a lot of fun and like a real little quirky piece. And one of the things that we talk about a lot when we talk about bringing in new miniatures is, so it's a basket 
with fake apples glued on top. And then there's two sides of a scene. And it's one of those things that a non-miniaturist could make and then pull out every autumn instead of like a wreath or something. But I mean, well, we talk about how do you bring people in? And so one of the things we have planned for November is a Christmas tree decorating event because I have friends, you probably have friends that don't want to do miniatures. But if you're like, we're doing this little Christmas thing, we're going to go decorate a tree. You can put it on your desk. You can tie it to your mother-in-law's Christmas present. You can add it to a tablescape. You can just give it to someone else, but it'll be fun. It's like 10 bucks. And getting people in and then they're like, oh, I love this. This is so fun. And they're very successful. So we're working on projects like that to invite people in. I do think there are a lot of people who would like miniatures if they just gave it a try. It's Mm -hmm. getting them in there, sort of luring them in and saying, come on in. The water's fine. And also being like, yeah, no, it doesn't have to be Victorian. There's amazing, very urban pieces right now. I think now we're seeing a lot more edgy things have been coming out and much more modern. Like it doesn't have to be. It's not your grandmother's dollhouse or it could be. Or you can take your grandmother's dollhouse and make it into something else, right? We've seen some of those. We had we've had some people come in and it's like the two generations grandma and the grandchild and like the mom is there being like how long are we gonna be here but then like the other two generations are like we could do this and we could do this what about if we do a harry potter room because they always say like what your mom does isn't cool but what your grandmother did is cool oh that's interesting well it's been such a delight talking to you i mean this museum is really dear to my heart because I have memories of both, you know, when when my kids were little and then kind of rediscovering it when we took Ryan to college. So it's really fun. Yeah. We're in our new location. We're fundraising for an elevator. So eventually we'll be about 9,000 square feet of public space. Wow. I didn't realize that. Well, we're getting there. As soon as money grows on trees or gets donated, we'll be at the next big step here. Well, it's already well worth going. I encourage everyone to go. And when you do go, shop heavily at the gift shop. Go to the shows. I just love going there. And last time I brought my son and my husband, and my older son, and he loved it. He posed with the big bears, and they had a great time. Yeah, and I'm in the gallery a lot, so you can always come play Quiz the Director. Sometimes people tell me, and then sometimes they just ask me increasingly harder questions. I'm like, I got to get out Google. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Wendy. Thank you. Have a great day and keep care of those miniatures for us. Will do. Bye-bye. Bye. My next episode features none other than the author of the book of minis and creator of the iconic Instagram page at Daily Mini. Kate and I talk about her love of minis, how she displays minis in her own home, and how she decides which photos and miniaturists she features in the Daily Mini. Till next time, remember, your dollhouse, your rules. Goodbye!